everybody. My name is Axel Villamil. We're back on 24 Shades of Blue. Back with the Chief. It's been almost two years. Chief Framer, how are you doing? Not too bad, Axe. Very good. Good, good. I'm glad. It's been a long two years since we've last spoken. Um, I mean, a lot's been going on. You took on a role in a very, very, very interesting time and uh, you've been pushing through. How does it feel? It's been pretty good. I mean, it's been challenging for the whole country. I mean, living through the pandemic here for the last two years and and hopefully we're finally getting to a point in time we're gonna we're gonna get out of it and and uh, we can get on with our lives and businesses and the economy and and uh, and move forward. Absolutely, it's just uh, it's that hope, right? You know, we're all here, um, excited for getting back to normal, and you know, just by the the show right now is we're in the studio together. A lot of our other shows were virtual, unfortunately, but uh, glad to see you in person. Um, I guess one of the big things you know that's on our mind is. What are those main priorities for 2022 and, you know, why were they chosen? I guess I'll go through the, the main priorities. I mean, the first one and our, our, our most significant priority is neighborhood officers. Uh, we're going to expand the program. Uh, we're looking to enhance by about 52 officers. Uh, and that's going to be accomplished uh, strictly by a redeployment and, and really changing the way our model of doing business that we've had in place for probably the last 30 years. So... Even with the um, our budget being approved there last week, there's really no new money other than for an additional 12 people to help us with major case management. So the redeployment of the uh, neighborhood officers is going to come uh, within our existing budget, but it's an absolute uh, number one priority. Addition, another priority is, of course, expansion of our Vision Zero program. Uh, in 2020, we created uh, 18 positions, 16 constables and two sergeants. And in 2021, they won the uh, CACP, the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police Reward for traffic enforcement uh, in terms of the work that they were doing. So we want to expand that pro program in concert with the city's Vision Zero program. Uh, we're going to um, continue to work with reform by completing the recommendations, the board's 81 and the 151 of Justice Epstein's. Uh, we want to enhance uh, our training and expand the training we're doing in terms of mental health with our frontline officers as well. So those are, are really our, our, our key priorities for, for 2022 uh, um, that, we, that we're definitely going to implement. I mean, that's amazing. You're stealing all my questions, just letting you know that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would like to elaborate. Let's elaborate because clearly you're ready to go. Um, what are those recommendations? So you spoke about Judge Epstein. Let's talk about them and um, you know how you're going to be implementing those recommendations. A very thorough report uh, and investigation done by Justice Epstein and, and a review of uh, started really with uh, the MacArthur investigation and, and 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 the way we're handling missing persons. And so 151 excellent recommendations that we're committed to complete. And what we've done is put in a 12 person. Uh, implementation team and then a um, a similar group of civilians uh, in the community that are participating. So it's being co-managed, co-led uh, by a group to really make us a leader in how we handle missing person investigations. And that's that's really what uh, the recommendations really are about uh, how we how we how we deal with marginalized communities, how we investigate. Uh, missing persons, how we manage multi-jurisdictional investigations, the fact that as an organization for the last, I guess, since 2005, last 17 years, we have not been complying with provincial legislation with respect to major case management. 
and, and how we do it. And so, and that not only has an impact on Toronto, it has an impact across the province when other services are not getting access to the information they should have. So it's quite profound. Uh, and, and again, that's uh, a, a number of key recommendations that Justice Epstein had surrounded major case management. So that's that's really what that is about. I mean, the topic of recommendations has always been seen in a very, I guess, different point of view. Some people can look at negatively. I, I like to look at things positive. Um, in your case, how beneficial has been getting recommendations from organizations and other partners for TPS been to strengthening um, Toronto Police Services actions and, and growing as a as an organization? Well, actually, I, quite frankly, I think they're vital. I mean, we operate on the basis of public trust and confidence. And so, you know, when when something is happening and we're not performing at a level that we should be, those recommendations are very, very important. And so I see it as an opportunity to uh, become better at the work that we do. And I mean, listen, we do a lot of incredible work at the Toronto Police Department. we got a great group of people that have a genuine and sincere commitment to the profession. But there's always things that we can do better. And clearly that was identified in the way uh, we handle missing and missed. And, and, and in many ways, it wasn't the fault so much of our members, although there was individual things that we could have done better. But it was really the way as an organization corporately we were managing it because we were not investi- investing in what was a mandated provincial program. And, and that clearly was identified as a weakness in our investigation. So, uh, you know, so our, our members in, in some ways sometimes wear some of the criticism there, but really there was things we could have done better corporately and that's what we're going to try to correct now. That's great. One thing I noticed as Motif as I've been doing so many of these interviews for the last two years is community. Uh, and it's a huge part of what I've noticed with Toronto Police Service. Now, I would like to ask you, how, why is it so important to you by including the community? Because you said, you know, with Judge Epstein's missing and missed review, it, it's, it was vital to bring in community members, especially from the LGBTQ um, 2S plus community. Uh, I just want to know, why is it so vital to have community work with Toronto Police? Well, you know what, uh, the police are the community, the community are the police, and we have to work collaboratively with them. And, you know, and, and, and just reiterate again, like public trust and confidence is essential. And and one of the things that I find works very effectively for us is when we also bring the community in, they get to see us up close and personal. Uh, they're, they're involved in presentations by all segments of the organization. They get to work collaboratively with them and they realize what we're all about as well. So we're human. Yeah, we make mistakes. Um, but uh, as I said earlier, a genuine and sincere commitment. And I think that opportunity to work together is so important. And, I, and I, I see great success coming out of those recommendations and the collaboration with the community. And, and as I said, we want to be a leader in how we investigate missing persons. And uh, there's some really good work on the forefront for that for us. Absolutely. I, I feel like a lot of people can talk and, and, and argue, but if there's no conversation with the two parties, that's where real change needs to happen. And I think that's what TPS is doing with the communities. You're having a conversation and you're working together. And yeah, it's actually, it's a great point, Alex, because even when you, you know, when we talked about the priorities earlier, it, we just didn't, you know, pick those priorities out on our own. That was in community collaboration. I mean, I, I would, I would go to scenes and sometimes with the mayor, we'd go to major crime scenes or something and the community would be there and say, you know, we need more neighborhood officers, chief. You know, our, our, our kids, the only time they play in the playground is when the neighborhood officer's there. And when the neighborhood officers leave, the kids come in the house. We want more neighborhood officers. And, and that, you heard that time and time again. So it's a priority with the community. 
Uh, I can tell you uh, many of the counselors actually support it and they want to see it in, in, in their areas of, of responsibility as well. And they're hearing it from their constituents. So we know it's a priority. And so that's why it is selected and, and is deemed to be our number one priority. I love it. Vision Zero. I want to talk about that. What are the plans to strengthen that program? Well, we're looking to um, add uh, an, an additional six officers. And and uh, one of the key components is that is is working very effectively with the city on the Vision Zero program. So where we deploy those officers are intelligence-led. It's where we're hearing from the community. So it ends up being in, 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 in high infraction areas. And it's focusing on the big four, right? It's speeding, distracted driving, impaired driving. You know, careless drive. I mean, it's it, it, it's um, um, you know, there's significant priorities. Main some of the main reasons why we're seeing traffic accidents. They're not always the type of offenses that you can capture with a speed camera or a red light camera, um, and uh, and and so that's why you need this type of enforcement. Uh, we started to give our officers some tools, and we advertise them. We're very public about it. We we have some different vehicles out there, vehicles that uh, are not readily identified as police until they're pulling up behind you and they're activate, activating some emergency lights. And um, um, and and so I think that's been very effective too in the enforcement. Matter of fact, those 18 officers we deployed in 2020 were doing 20% of all the enforcement of the Toronto Police Service, right? And, and uh, because of their attention. But like I said, I want to emphasize they're intelligence-led and they're deployed to high traffic areas, high accident areas, high infraction areas where the community calls in. And I think that's, that's what we need to be doing. And, and I think that's going to help the overall goal of Vision Zero. Oh, absolutely. I, I want to dive deeper and just for our audience to understand, I would love you to explain what does intelligence-led mean as uh, officers respond? Well, it's really what we do is just take all the information available, uh, traffic accidents, other enforcement that we were doing, reports from the public, uh, what the city can tell us based on their data. And you take all of that data and you collate it, and then you identify where your priorities are. Again, we have a limit, limited number of individuals, uh, like I say, 18. I'm, I'm planning to increase that to 24. And of course, that's working different shifts as well. So we have to prioritize what those areas are, and, and, and that's what we'll do. I mean, the reality, policing is changing in a number of ways. You know, you're seeing we've reduced our our, our uniform complement by, by uh, over 500 officers. Uh, some civilian positions have been hired but don't do enforcement. So a lot of times the frontline officers are really um, impacted by the number of radio calls, big city, uh, growing probably faster than anywhere in North America. Calls for service are going up. You know, they're, they're going from call to call quite often. So you need that focused attention on traffic enforcement. It's it's really a core responsibility. It's something that uh, we had sort of let drop a little bit, and but we're back in the game and uh, there's a real focus on it. You know, as a civilian, I would never think of innovation happening in policing, to be honest. You know, you think about it, it's just you break the law, you're in trouble. That's just high level as, you know, somebody at least prior to me learning so much more doing the series. Do you believe that Toronto Police Service is innovating in the policing industry. Yeah, when we're talking about innovation, uh, I, I like to refer to mental health. I mean, it, it's such a uh, a focal point now in terms of policing emergency response. Uh, you know, the city is about to launch their pilot or their community crisis support service, which is which we are partnering with them on. You know, we when it comes to mental health, we've been doing it for twenty years. 
we had our MCIT program 20 years ago where we had off specially trained officers working with nurses to, to, to address mental health calls. And I think we're really a leader in the program. So the idea that we want to continue collaborating and working with other uh, outside agency specialists so that we can have better outcomes on mental health, we're all, we're all into that. And, and I think that's part of innovation because it really is something that we want to have specialized people involved in and assisting with. And I, uh, I really like the program. I, I, I like the goals of the program. But the reality is police are always going to be involved to some extent because you're going to have people that, that uh, are, there's going to be weapons, there's going to be violence. Um, and, uh, you know, some people are going to need to be apprehended and taken to a mental health facility. But I think one of the real goals from my perspective I would like to see is I'd like to see the upstream help. Because in many ways, you know, I uh, act, I mean, I look at 1981 when I started in 14 Division and dealing with mental health. And, and, and I'm not sure until here we are 40 years later, it's changed a lot. And, and I think what the city we're doing in collaboration in the city is probably one of the most progressive and significant changes I've seen in my career. But what we need is upstream. So when rather than, you know, taking people to a, uh, a mental health facility and, and, you know, they're deemed to not be an imminent threat of death to themselves or somebody else and they're released back into the community, what are the services we're providing to help them? Because some of these people do need help. Mental, mental it's, it's an illness. And, and so some of those avenues are what we have to increase. And I'm really hoping uh, with this program, with the city, we're going to see an increase in those type of opportunities. So whether it be ambulance or fire services or social workers or MCI team or just police officers, there's some places, there's some place that we can take an individual to get help. I mean, the world has changed, right? The world of, of, of the stigma of mental health, right? It, it's, it's much more accepted, uh, you know, nowadays. And like that, and, and what you're saying is that organizations have to change, you know, in order to not only, you know, understand these issues, but also like what you're saying, you know, with, with your plans is to actually go help and help these people. I think this goes down internally to your team too, as well. Internally, I've been through, I think more than 24 episodes of, of you know, wonderful people at TPS and hearing about what they've also done. And also now there's new services for mental health for the force as well. Can you talk about that? Um, and how mental health is evolving within the organization. Yeah, no, it's it's an absolute priority. And we're, we're, we're talking about it more than we ever did uh, and, and trying to reduce that stigma. Uh, right now, we're in the process of trying to move our services off-site to create more confidence in the, by the members to actually utilize the services, to, to actually seek help, seek help. And we're constantly reminding our members, be an advocate for somebody else. You know, when you're when you, when you go home at the end of the day, are you okay? And what about the person you're working with? So let's let's be talking about that. You know, more training for our supervisors to know how to ask questions, to feel comfortable about asking questions. Uh, very very important. And and I like I say, I think one of the key items is going to be trying to uh, establish a facility offsite so that uh, members from across the organization can go there and and feel that they're getting specialized care. But it's, it's, it's private if they want it to be, and it's not necessarily out in the open, and it's other people don't have to necessarily know what you're doing. That sounds so, so great for the team, because the stories I've heard, um, it's a very difficult job. I, I very much empathize with how you can bring that type of work home. You know, you see everything from 
child abuse all the way to, you know, petty crimes and things like that. But it's still going to affect a person. And like you said, you know, it will affect your performance and, and what you have to do. So being clear and, and being level headed is, is so important with how you operate as a human being. No, you're, you're absolutely right. I, again, I mean, you you see sometimes the, the worst of the human condition and, and unfortunately what some people will do to other people you know, tragic accidents and scenes and you're confronted with. And, and uh, so some of those can be difficult and some of them, you know, over a period of time, they compound and, uh, you know, people can have a very difficult time with them. So it's something that's very important to member health and wellness. And listen, if you're not at the top of your game, uh, you're not going to provide as good a service, right? And then that's where we can run into problems as well. So we want people to be at the top of their game when they're when they're out there, and and so that we can get a better result and, and better public safety. Yeah, guys, I call I call the chief at night. You know, when I have like issues, I'm just kidding. I don't call him at night. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Um, don't worry. I'll message you if I'm feeling feeling sad. Um, I do want to step back though. When we first met, this was 2020, and this you just got into the role. Uh, it was a very heated time for the policing industry. Now, I would like to talk about what is the plan of action for Toronto Police Service to raise awareness and combat the rise of hate crimes within the city? That is, it's been a very, very difficult issue. And we've seen two successive years with our numbers increasing during the course of the pandemic. You know, we're, you know, first of all, let me say this. The, the service is part of a 18 member group in the province, uh, the provincially funded in hate crime and extremism uh, unit. And, and we, you know, we provincially train together. Um, we're very, very, the, the investigators are actually very, very good. But, you know, when we, we, our hate crime is situated in our intelligence unit. It's a small number of officers. We increased by two in 2020. But our, the investigation of hate crime is generally goes throughout the divisions and it's overseen by our intelligence unit. One of the things we're doing again this year, and I think I missed that in our priorities, and it is a priority, is to increase our complement of hate crime investigators. And what that's really to do is to create our capacity. So when you start having hate crime and you're seeing that it's maybe being per or perpetrated by one individual uh, across maybe different locations, so we want to actually remove that responsibility out of the division and have it with our specialized hate crime unit to focus on those investigations to be doing more training in the community because one of the things in some of our communities we see is that people are reluctant to report it. And, and if they're not reporting it, then we don't know what's happening. And that's problematic for us as well. So key, so they're, in, they're involved in training presentations to increase our capacity to do that, to increase our capacity to investigate it. And then the final comment I'll make about that is, you know, investigating hate crime and prosecuting can be very difficult. The threshold is very high and you require the attorney general to support those investigations or those charges. So we're, 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 we're meeting with different groups now and investigating. Are there other ways to address hate crime, perhaps from a civil component, to get, at, you know, to get at some of the people that are, are perpetuating these crimes? Because, you know, it's, I, I think it's going to require some different avenues uh, and to really increase the attention and focus we have towards stopping it. Yeah, I mean, it goes back down to not just what you do internally, it's how you're partnering with the community for all of this. So it sounds like there's a lot on, on, on the go and, and a lot has been you know worked on over the past two years. Uh, do you think you felt like the force has been progressing? I do. And, and actually, you know, with respect to hate crime, one of the things we just started is we have a Jewish uh, chief's consultative committee that uh, we just started this year. And that's the first time we've ever had that. And and we've got a cross-section of the Jewish community now. And much like our, 
you know, our, our Muslim community, uh, our South Asian communities, our, our, our black uh, consultative committee, we've now added the Jewish community. And, and that it is really to make sure we're working with them. Uh, that uh, they're, we're, we're understanding what's happening in the community. Uh, they're offering advice and solutions. There's collaboration. That's what you want to do. That's what we're doing with all of these communities. Help them to be advocates for us as well and working together, making sure people are reporting it, helping us solve those crimes. And, and you know what? We're going to work together with the different levels of government to see if we can make some changes so that there can be better opportunities for enforcement. You spoke a lot about mental health within the force, which is, you know, glad to hear that you're really thinking about internally for mental health, uh, what's happening on your team. Another couple topics I want to talk about internally is also how are you battling sexual harassment and discrimination within the force as well? You know what, that uh, is, is a, a real priority for us too. You know, um, we're, we're really trying, I mean, we're, we're leading in our anti-black racism training. We're trying to involve the community in that. And we're, we've had some bumps in the road with that because you know, we, we present what we're going to plan and the community has some concerns about what it is. So we're listening and we're going to get them back together and we're going to have to make changes to some of that training. But I think that's good because that that's, again, how you have and, and you're going to ensure public trust and confidence and support is that we're listening and we're going to make sure that the training reflects what the community with the lived experience believes the training has to be. And I think that's so important. I think the key for us is that we're prepared to listen. And so we're, we're doing a lot of work on the, uh, on the racism side, uh, to make sure our people, uh, and really enhancing our training and making a focus of the organization. The sexual harassment is a, a very uh, concerning piece in particular. And, and, and one of the messages, uh, I think we as an organization are demonstrating to our membership, um, is it's not going to be tolerated, completely unacceptable. And we'll, not, and we are going to vig- vigorously investigate that. And, and our members, it's just, it's not going to be tolerated. The, uh, we're trying to change that, uh, that culture, uh, that, uh, that was out there with respect to that, uh, especially sexual harassment. And one of the other things that we're doing is recognizing that it's not just the Toronto police service, it's in the, across organizations. And so, you know, I, I've spoken with Commissioner Creek and we started there to work collaboratively together to say, how can we address this issue that's impacting policing? And then we've expanded with other organizations as well now, other policing organizations to work together. So how can we comprehensively address this issue? And it's not just the Toronto Police or it's not just the OPP, it's all of us working together because we all hire from the same pool of people, right? Uh, We have people that will move from different organizations as well. So it's, it's really a policing issue uh, uh, that affects all of policing and we want to address it in a very fulsome way. And I can tell you it's something that we will investigate vigorously and we're finding new ways as well to, so it's not always under the Police Service Act. We're trying to create um, uh, solutions where you have mediators involved. We try to get people to come forward with their concerns at an earlier stage so we can address it perhaps before it gets out of hand so that we can get members involved in education pieces. You know, even uh, we ended up doing um, some additional training out in 23 Division because of an issue that was out there. While the training was so well received, uh, done by a legal firm, we then expanded it across the organization. So to demonstrate our commitment, we've brought specialized training in. Uh, from outside people uh, to to talk to the organization, be it about sexual harassment or racism. So I think these are all things that we're trying to do. And there's a 
there's a genuine, again, commitment to make sure we change that culture and make it a better place for people to work. Absolutely. I feel like, you know, like you said, this is not a TPS, solely a TPS issue. This is an industry level issue. And that requires a lot of people to band together to make a change and figure out those solutions because it's, I mean, many industries are dealing with this very issue. Um, I don't think there's one right solution. I think what the right thing to do first, and just from my opinion, is you're having that conversation, you're speaking to people, you're putting a plan of action. And that's, I think, what's very important to do right now. So um, that's great. I do want to talk about one thing. This is obviously one elephant in the room I'd love to talk about is let's talk about Freedom Convoy and how you handled that. <laughs> it, well, I mean, listen. Trucks on the war, on the road, blocking businesses. This is an operational nightmare. And I mean, from how I see it, how did TPS handle this and how do you handle this so smoothly? I mean, first of all, we, we learned a lot by what was happening in Ottawa and, uh, you know, the intelligence that we were receiving and what was potentially going to happen in Toronto. And, you know, we facilitate protests all the time. We have protests in Toronto weekly. Several thousand people will protest at Queen's Park. And so we're very used to dealing with that. And, and people do have a right to protest and we will facilitate it. But you don't have a right to come in with vehicles and park them and obstruct the roadway and prevent businesses from operating and all of those things. And so we made it very clear as part of our mission that that wasn't happening. You want We will facilitate protests. You can park your vehicle someplace else and come in and protest. And, and as we do every weekend, we will facilitate it. And, and uh, you know, probably 95, 98% of the time, our protests are very, very peaceful and our officers manage that very well. And so that was essentially our, our mission from the start is that come in and protest, um, but you're not doing it from vehicles. And so our, our, we have very, very experienced incident commanders, uh, public order unit commanders, and our planners are very good. And that was the process they put in place and they implemented a plan that was very, very good. I think we communicated it well across the city about what our intentions were and where there would be inf- inconvenience. And, and quite frankly, part of our mission was to minimize the disruption to the city of Toronto. You know, the, we were just getting to the point where restaurants could fully open and we didn't want it to impact, uh, you know, those type of places uh, so businesses could operate. And, and of course, uh, priority was the hospitals, you know, our, our our healthcare workers, you know, patients coming in, absolute priority that they were not going to be interfered with. And so uh, we were fortunate and and I think, uh, but there was some good planning and, and we've come through it to this point very well, And but we still need to stay on top of it. Of course, humble. I like it. <laughs> um, you did a great job. My mom works at Mount Sinai, so she very much enjoyed the free path to get to work easily. So I want to commend you on that. To wrap up, Chief. What do you think the future is for Toronto Police Services? Are you excited about it? Are you are you ready for the amount of work that you think you need to do? What is your thoughts right now? Actually, I, I think uh, it's quite frankly uh, it's an exciting time. I mean, uh, policing has changed so much, uh, you know, over my career. But you know, what really stands out for me is is the collaboration with the city. Like when you look at the collaboration that we had even during the Freedom Convoy unparalleled the cooperation uh you know with all aspects of the city getting city vehicles to assist us to to block streets off uh you know working with the fire chief peg uh the mayor's office the city manager all the staff that were all working collectively together to do what we did so this wasn't just the success of the toronto police this was the city of toronto's success and it was because of that collaboration and you're seeing that same collaboration as we address the mental health file 
which is a significant priority. So um, I think the opportunities for doing policing in a different way, in a better way, for better outcomes for the public uh, um, is, is uh, I, I think it's, it's, there's some great opportunity for the future. And I think it's a bright opportunity. It's, you know, when I think about candidates coming in for policing, it's, it's, it's really a, a different way of doing business, right? And it's a way to really enhance the professionalism of police and the satisfaction in terms of the work that we do. And I, I just remind our people every day, every contact is important. And, and I think as long as they keep that at the, at the, at the center of what they're doing every day, then we're going to be successful. Chief Raymer, thank you so much for your time. It's 24 Shades of Blue. We're out. 